Hello, and welcome to Silver Screen Superheroes. I'm your host, Alex Case. This month, we are talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. Probably best known with the subtitle Turtles in Time. However, that subtitle was actually a sort of fan creation. Around the time this game came out, there was a video game released called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4, Turtles in Time, for the Super Nintendo. And lots of kids my age, including me, referred to this film by the same title, subtitle, because it included time travel as a significant element of the plot. Well, let's just say that this film is not as good as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4 for the Super Nintendo. This is, for the Turtles franchise, what's considered to be its Batman and Robin. Now, the previous film that we've gotten into in the Turtles franchise, Turtles 2, had a swift turnaround, very swift, from the first film in the series, as in one year. Whereas this movie came out about two years after Turtles 2. So, a bit longer turnaround, and this allows two members of the original film's cast to return. Alexis Codius is returning as Casey Jones, and as the voice for Donatello, Corey Feldman is returning. So, we got two members of the cast back, but that's pretty much all we're getting back from the original Turtles film. So, the, the probably the greatest loss of this film in terms of cast members leaving is not so much a cast, though a cast member is included in this, but a team. The first two films had the puppet work in terms of facial expressions for the turtles, the suit designs, as well as puppeteering for Splinter being done by the Jim Henson Studios. For this movie, we went to a new company, rather the, the production company went to a new group of people. The animatronics and suit designs and puppeteering was done by All Effects Company. I tried to find some information as to why they wanted the change, and I can't really come up with any information on why. A couple possible speculations I have is, one is the Creature Shop might have been restructuring around the time that the film came out, because we had, at this point, had the passing of Jim Henson, and a certain degree of, okay... Right, Brian's in charge now. What are we working on now? Looking at their filmography in the 90s and 92 in particular, was Muppet Christmas Carol. And other than that, and they were working on two things in 94. They were working on the Flintstones film, so handling things like Dino and that sort of stuff. And Neverending Story 3. Yeah, Muppet Christmas Carol was 92. So, I can't really speak to what was going on behind the scenes for why this did not happen. But ultimately, this film suffers for this. We no longer have Kevin Clash as the voice of Splinter. We still have an actor by the name of James Murray, who does well enough. But I'd say that the Jim Henson company, their puppeteers tend to bring a little something extra to their puppeteering that other films don't quite. Now, for what it's worth, Darby or Murray is now working for the Jim Henson um, company, having um, worked on with the Muppets as an additional Muppet performer on Lady Gaga and the Muppets Holiday Spectacular, Muppets Most Wanted, and the 2011 Muppets movie, along with 
before this, having done some work on Greg the Bunny. So he done some puppeteering work. Uh, not insignificant amount of puppeteering work, but not on the Muppets. Looking at his yeah, cast list, we have work on the additional dinosaur performer on the Dinosaurs television series, which I enjoyed as a child. It had some a good mix of mature humor and humor for younger audiences. He'd done some Muppet stuff after this, but it's like Muppet Classic Theater, the Timmy the Tooth series, the Mr. Potato Head show, occasional bits of side voice acting. He did voice acting to anime series um, as a background character in Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex, a one-off character in the anime series Yukikaze, and a little bit of video game voice acting work, particularly in The Darkness 2, and as a one-off character in the Bureau XCOM Declassified. So, there's that. Now, because this film spends a significant amount of time in feudal Japan, we have a significant number of cast members who are Japanese-American. And I do want to give props to filmmakers for casting Japanese actors in Japanese roles. We don't have a situation of, oh, we're shooting in feudal Japan... Let's go to central casting and just get general Asian actors. I mean, also, I mean, not having any sort of significant whitewashing is good either, but still. It's nice when they go, okay, these characters are Japanese, going to cast Japanese people. As opposed to, because uh, they're, they're different ethnic groups, and, and certainly there's a degree of tension among the Asian American community with casting people of a completely different Asian ethnicity for a Asian role, because in the eyes of the casting people, all Asian people are the same, which is not true in the slightest. Probably the one exception to this is the character of Mitsu, who is played by Vivian Wu, who has had a significant amount of acting work in China directly before doing a couple roles in the United States on television and a few film series, including Millennium. So... Blaine may be talking about her in the future, as well as a little bit of video game voice acting work. So, I mentioned Elias Cotius is returning to the film as Casey Jones. He's also playing a dual role in the movie, because he is playing Casey Jones' ancestor as well, one of his ancestors. A man by the name of Wit, who is in, who came to Japan with the antagonist, a man named Walker, and who decided to turn against him. And so we have the sort of dichotomy of sort of slacker rogue hero in the future with Casey Jones and sort of more noble chap in the past. And April interacting primarily with, with Wit and having to deal with the fact that she is projecting her feelings that she has for Casey on Wit. And this is not, is not gone into nearly as well as you'd think by me discussing this because this film is, as I mentioned before, terrible. That said... Casey Jones does a decent job in this film, and I am glad that they, that they, well, Casey Jones, Cotius did a good job in this film, and I'm very glad they brought Cotius back. It is really unfortunate that he doesn't have much to do in the present, but this is partially due to the fact that this film suffers a great deal of the problems that Turtles 2 had, where Turtles 2 was effectively kiddying the film down to, to fit it tonally with the animated series much more closely, and this film just continues that trend. And for much of the first, well, for the second film, it kind of works to certainly having Casey Jones not there. Because as I've described Casey Jones in the past, he is 
a more PG-13 slash PG version of Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. And if you're trying to make as close, if you're trying to make as much of a soft PG, hard G movie as Turtles 2 was, then you face the fact that having the slightly more family-friendly Travis Bickle-esque character in your film isn't going to work. Whereas here, it shows up clearly that Casey Jones has basically, to a certain extent, been defanged in this film. His edge is gone. His hard edges, his rough nature is gone. He's not a guy necessarily anymore who's going to put on a hockey mask, grab a golf bag full of sporting equipment, and beat up muggers in the middle of the night. He gets a fight scene, but it's not really the same, and it doesn't work as well. Probably talk a bit about Walker as well. His actor is played by, well, the character is played by Stuart Wilson. The character is a English trader who has come to smuggle firearms into Japan. Now, Wilson has been in a few notable roles. He was in The Mask of Zorro and, and Enemy of the State in 1998. He was Dr. Hatcher in Hot Fuzz. He has had a couple roles in the television series MI5, also known in, known in the UK as Spooks. And he was Jack Travis in Lethal Weapon 3, which came out two years before this, contemporary with the second film. And in that film, he was playing the big bad. So this is definitely a case where Wilson is in this movie based on his role as the heavy, as the bad guy in Lethal Weapon 3. So let's talk about the plot. The Turtles are in their lair from the second film, which is still a good set, and I'm glad that they reused it, and they kept it around. And while they're in the lair, April stops by after, uh, while they're something of an argument of, well, we've beaten the foot, we've saved the city, we've been outed, why are we still hanging out down here? And basically April shows up with some stuff as a distraction, including a ancient artifact she picked up at a flea market, to help, uh, to help, but it was a gift for Splinter, for Splinter. Everyone got various gifts of various kinds. Lotello got a tube radio. Raphael got a fedora. Michelangelo got a lampshade to wear on his head because he's a silly person, etc. So, meanwhile, in feudal Japan, which by by feudal Japan I mean it's set there, but we have a case of for the exterior shots. Or the Oregon coast is doubling for the Japanese coast. And I live in Oregon. It's nice seeing Oregon in film. However, this is probably the worst film that the state of Oregon has been featured in. And I'm including The Hunted, starring um, Benicio Del Toro. That film had some, had some very good moments to it and some good performances by... Tommy Lee Jones and Benicio Del Toro, and they really help save that film. There is very little that saves this film. There's nothing that saves this film. There is no saving this film. Now, the head of... Well, the son of the head of this clan, Clan Norinaga, is in love with a group... with the, the woman leader of a group of rebels, and is trying to get his father to turn his back on Walker, the British person who's come to sell them firearms to defeat the rebels and any other enemies they have. And while throwing a temper tantrum, he breaks open a statue and discovers 
the scepter, which April has in the future, as well, along with a drawing that shows, appears to be four turtles carrying, well, basically the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And this is basically where the film runs into its first problem. The turtles are going to go back in time to after this event happens, because the guy picks up the scepter, says the inscription on it, it pulls April back in time to two swap places. The turtles then swap again later in the film with four warriors who are carrying the scepter into battle. So here is question one. When did the turtles get pulled back in time to create the drawing that was placed with the scepter? There's that. Additionally, we also had the slight problem of, thus far, the Turtles film franchise, though a little less the comic franchise, and primarily strictly science fiction. Even the animated series as well. We've had alien menaces, we've had mutations basically made out of blunt application of radiation. But while the science is poor, it, if this has all been coached in the language of science. This is the first directly fantastic magical thing in the Turtles series. So there's that issue. This leads me to the second problem with the film plot that comes up just in this portion of the film. This is before we've gotten significantly into the time travel, before the Turtles themselves have gone back in time. This is Feudal Japan. The film is not too specific on when, but it is set about the 1600s, somewhere around there. Firearms, when they were introduced to Japan, pretty much every warlord wanted them, and warlords were not shy about saying they had them. Walker acts like he is the first guy to bring firearms to Japan. Indeed, going from Wikipedia, the arquebus was introduced to Japan in 1543 by Portuguese traders. So we're in the 1600s, firearms are already here. They've been here for a while. Actually, it's possible that the the film is actually set in the 1500s, and this is a case of the typeface in the caption being the opening film being terrible, which is not unheard of. In which case, we could make an argument that this is before the Portuguese arrival, but that's still kind of rough. That said, I will give them credit that the weapons being used in the film are period accurate. If it is 1500s, they are the characters are carrying called snap arquebuses, which use a lit, slow-burning fuse on the sort of hammer of the weapon. To if you're looking at it and not familiar with the parts of a gun, but are familiar with modern guns, which takes a lit, burning mat, match, it's basically kind of like a fuse, and puts it into the priming pan, which is contains powder and that sort of thing, which in turn ignites the powder in the barrel, which shoots the ball. Now, the arquebus is not, was at the time, not as accurate as either as a bow in the hands of an archer, but it punches through armor, and a masked volley can basically pretty much wipe out an entire charging force, and reloads faster than crossbows. Has some more penetrating power, to a certain degree. So... This leads to situations like in the Kurosawa film Kakimusha, when we have a dramatized version of the Battle of Nagashino, where massed um, musket fire basically wipes out groups of um, charging cavalry. So, 
this film is a little rough because it's either being in terms of timeline wise I can't get quite as mad as I thought now if this is actually 1600s not 1500s then the idea of these guys selling guns and like oh this is this is the total game changer nobody's got these is bogus if this is meant to be before the Portuguese invade Portuguese arrival and selling of muskets then I could probably cut them a little bit of slack because didn't we get the because the turtles prevent the guns from being sold that gives them something something that the uh, um, that no one else had seen before and could be a great equalizer and the fact that the turtles prevent them from being sold preserves the timeline so to speak so the turtles end up being taken back in time in pursuit of April this time they in initiate the time travel and four warriors are brought back to the well brought to the future and the warriors are put in the care of Kenshin and Casey Jones to basically serve as babysitter. So there's that. And from here, we have hijinks ensuing in the past. Because this film has pretty much about as much slapstick as Turtles 2 did in the fight scenes. But here, there's the situation where no one has a reason not to use their weapons. There's no reason for the samurai not to use their swords. There's no reason the Turtles not to use their swords and bows and that sort of thing. We do have the advantage here in terms of the fighting where the turtles are going out are using the weapons against other people who are armed, but it still doesn't quite work as well. It's situations where somebody needs a sword fight by cutting somebody's top uh, top knot or by cutting the waistband of their pants or that sort of thing. Lots of bad slapstick conclusions to fights as opposed to any anything that feels even remotely like real even compared to stuff like say princess bride where there are sword fights very few people kill each other with their swords but when they don't kill each other a situation where somebody has their mercy and they use a non they use a non-comedic way to remove them from the fight puts them at their mercy punches them in the face or smacks them upside the head with the hilt of their sword that sort of thing so this film is significantly disappointing in that regard there are additional character bits as well. The It turns out the turtles don't speak Japanese, don't know any Japanese at all, in spite of being raised by a rat who was... A Japanese rat. Long story short, he's raised by... His master is Japanese, and he came to America with his master, as established in the first film. So there's that. Further... Aside from the, the wit connection and just needing to bring April back from the past, the stakes are significantly low. If, I mean, yes, saving um, wit potentially saves Casey Jones in the future, but April is only, only the real one who picks up on the Casey Jones connection, really. Theoretically, stopping Walker from introducing the guns could prevent guns from being introduced too early in the timeline, but that's really depending on other aspects of the film. It's kind of questionable. There's potentially a implication that the kid that Michelangelo befriends in the past is somehow related to to Splinter's master, but that's not really clear. All they really share is 
a first name, or rather a, a rather the first name, but a given name as opposed to a fam familial name. So I'll use that. So the plot just doesn't work very well. Additionally, the effects aren't great. The suits certainly, I will give them that they appear to be much more mobile in fights. We see Donatello able to do some stuff with the bow that we he really wasn't able to do in the earlier films, and like he's actually really demonstrating bow staff fighting very well there are films where the costumes are a bit more i feel like restrictive for the bow to be as useful as a weapon in terms of use it to its full potential so i that's probably the one thing that these that these suit designers have going for them but the faces are not as expressive they have some movement in the face but not as much the effect for when walker is defeated and he, he dies the disney death you fall from a great height in this case into water and rather than having to add like a splat rather than doing something like oh we're dropping something off a cliff we're using that footage and we're superimposing walker over that thing so that when he hits when the the object hits the water and splashes um we'll edit we'll cut in the splash we have no splash here it's just like they they cut around him Further, there's a kind of pretty terrible shot at the beginning of the film, which shows a group of samurai riding in front of the sunset. And it's clear from sort of green screen artifacting on the clothes of, on the armor of the samurai, that it's a, it's a green screen shot, which is somewhat baffling. It made a situation where they had this particular shot in mind, there's no way they were able to replicate it in the location they were shooting at. But even then, there's a, gotta be a better way to do that than a green screen shot that you can't pull off. The final problem, I, I major problem I have with the film, aside from the terrible comedy and the terrible slapstick, and there's a lot of it in this film, it's, is that the movie it seems like a silly thing, but it's has very little even the, only the slightest lip service to the idea of the fact that they are, that because we're in feudal Japan, these people, the people there speak Japanese as their first language everyone the turtles encounter speaks English. It's one thing if, like, for example, the nobles speak English, if Lord Norinaga and the higher-up members of his court, like Kinshin, speak English because they've been interacting with Walker, who either doesn't speak Japanese or doesn't care that much to speak Japanese, or maybe doesn't speak it well, or they've been dealing with Walker long enough to pick up fluency, in which case, however, the film doesn't set up a situation where that could be the case because it's kind of clear that Walker's shown up and had hasn't been around there very long. I mean, he's been around there for a bit, but not long enough where Norinaga has reason to pick up English with enough fluency to speak fluently. Same with uh, Kenshin. It feels like a situation where where the makers of the film thought, oh, we're making this film for audiences who can't read well, who watch the cartoon show, but are young enough, like five or six, where their reading is not great and we can't trust their reading comprehension enough to get across the concepts we're trying to get across, even though they're incredibly basic, in subtitle form. So we're not going to do subtitles. To which my response is, Star Wars trusted its audience enough to put subtitles in the movie for basically the second and third movies, for Greedo in A New Hope, for Jabba in Return of the Jedi. So if Star Wars trusted its audience, and particularly considering... Return of the Jedi, to a certain degree, is skewed a little younger, particularly based on the fact that we're including the 
Ewoks as characters designed to appeal to significantly younger audiences, then why aren't you? Why aren't the filmmakers trusting their audience? And again, kind of the, the, the not so much, uh, th- those are the final nails in the coffin. They're, they are the whipped cream and cherry on top of the Sunday of stink. The Sunday itself, the, the rest of the nails in the coffin, not the coffin itself, is the terrible comedy. I remember an interview with Mike Nelson of Mystery Science Theater 3000, and this is sentiment echoed by Joel, also the show, that the most difficult films for them to riff were films that were bad comedies, because you can take a dramatic film, a action film, and if it takes itself seriously enough, and it is bad enough, you can make it funny by making fun of the elements that it takes that it takes too seriously, the places where it falls down. That's the reason why The Room has become a cult classic. It's the reason why Miami Connection has become a cult classic. It's the reason why Birdemic became a cult classic. These are films which did not want to be comedies, were not intended to be funny. These are films that were intended to be a dramatic work on on par with Tennessee Williams, as in Room, meant to be a significant martial arts film showing the power of Taekwondo and its potential for peace. As in Miami Connection, it's a film that basically wants to be a modern day of the birds in terms of birdemic, and they all fail spectacularly. And it's all, they are, none of them aware that they are failing, nor are they aware that they are funny when they make them. Whereas for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, and for that matter 2, these are films that are aiming for younger audiences that are trying to be funny. They are trying very, very hard to be funny, and they are failing spectacularly, repeatedly, over and over again. Now, to younger audiences, certainly these jokes may have worked really well, but coming to this grown-up, having seen Turtles 1, a film which combines slapstick for the younger audiences and jokes aimed for grown-ups, this is probably the least watchable film in the series. With Turtles 2, there were elements of early 90s, late 80s camp and pop culture that are fit in there unintentionally that added a degree of comedy to the film. Stuff like the appearance of Vanilla Ice. And that film also has David Warner, who is a spectacular actor and who was managed to uplift numerous terrible movies into something more tolerable. Turtles 3, the only thing that's going for it is Elias Codius. And indeed, of the actors in this film, Elias Codius's arc is of his career is probably the best, because after this he goes on to be in the Terrence Malick movie The Thin Red Line, which I watched for class. I did not enjoy it, but I appreciated the artistic merits that in, that Malick had in mind, and I considered the strong point of that film, its greatest strength, to be the performance by Elias Codius. He is a excellent actor, and I am glad that he was in the Turtles films. I just wish that his second and final appearance in the Turtles films was a film that was actually good. Let's talk about how well this film fared at the box office. This is particularly noticeable, notable because it will be quite some time in terms of not so much podcasts, but in terms of real-life timeline between the release of this film and the next film we get in the series, which is the CGI animated film TMNT put out by Mago Studios. This film's estimate Estimated budget, according to IMDb, is $17 million. Now, our rule of thumb 
is that a film needs to make twice its budget back at as the gross in order to be profitable. Of course, Hollywood accounting, it's never profitable. That's one of the problems with Hollywood accounting. But we have this rule of thumb we can use. Now, the movie made $42,660,000 in the U.S. box office, the domestic box office, which is 2.5 approximately times its budget. So it made its money back barely. The film will also then make in rentals another 17000 uh Another 19 million, uh, 19.8 million, which is again over its budget. However, I don't know how the breakdown of what the studio and the actors make just to tell exactly how that contributes to a film's profitability, so to speak. That, combined with the fact that this film was savaged at the box office, justifiably so, and a lot of other by critics said justifiably so, led to this effectively being the final film of the of the original sort of live action turtles franchise the the final film used practical effects for the turtles we would see practical animatronic suits used for the teenage mutant ninja turtles the next mutation live action series and also the last turtles film we would get until 2007 which is almost well it's over 10 years probably about 14 years later so this this basically killed the Turtles franchise for 15 years. And indeed, next month, I will talk about the Imago Studios animated film, TMNT, with a much better cast and a significantly better film. So, thank you very much for watching, or listening, rather. I will see you then. Hear you then. If you enjoyed the show, please... Um, Give a positive review on iTunes and Stitcher or whatever your podcasting client is. And check out our other podcasts. We have, I would certainly recommend, aside from the uh, Master Podcast audio feed, which has everything put out, including this, and the other podcast I do for Bureau of 42, which is the greatest science fiction film tournament podcast, is with the upcoming return of the X-Files. I would certainly recommend Blaine Dowler's X-Files Retrospectives podcast, along with his comic book physics and 20, and 75 Greatest Marvel's Countdown podcasts. Excellent podcasts. I listen to all of them, and I enjoy them immensely. And I don't just say that because I'm on the same network. I am with the site. It is, they're all worth checking out. And I, yeah. So once again, thank you very much for listening.